This is the Incubator and the Neonatology Review Podcast. We are your study buddies for neonatology topics. I'm Dr. Ben Korsha. And I'm Dr. Daphne Yasova Barbo. Welcome. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. It is Tuesday. We are going through the GI section. Daphna, how are you? I'm doing great. <laughs> oh, boy. I'm sorry. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. How are you? Um, My asthma has been flaring up. I am wondering if I'm having worse asthma because I recently had COVID. Ooh, big Probably. Question. Maybe. Probably. So, um, but all is well otherwise. Lots of bronchospasm then, huh? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> we are not studying asthma today. We're no. Studying and the GI we'll section. suck it up and move right along. Uh, shall I go? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, so we're moving on our anatomic uh, journey here uh, into the stomach. And um, the first problem, pathology... They talk about a spontaneous gastric perforation. We talk about it a lot. Don't see it that often. The it's risk... never. I was going to say it's never the spontaneous <laughs> gastric perforation. <laughs> um, let's see. The risk factors are that they are increased with perinatal stress, prematurity, and postnatal steroid exposure. Un- uh, not unlike uh, spontaneous intestinal perforation. But 20% are still without these predisposing risk factors, um, and we still um, can see spontaneous gastric perforation. Um, the etiology is really felt uh, to be so different than SIP. It's really felt to be related to mechanical over overdistension rather than the ischemic pathology um, we see in the intestines. Um, clinically, uh, we usually see uh, like a large amount of air, huge amount of air, um, very high up in the in the um, epigastrum, usually presents at uh, two to seven days after birth, and obviously presents with abrupt abdominal distension, marked respiratory distress, and can sometimes present um, like sepsis and then this shock-like picture. Um, obviously, it's it's evident uh, by abdominal radiograph because, again, the amount of air is usually impressive. And then the management is paracentesis um, and then and sometimes requires surgical intervention. Yikes. Yikes. Yucky. I have a feeling this is... But I will young. say sometimes, right, it's sometimes hard to distinguish from SIP. Um, the risk factors are the same. Uh, the timing is the same. Uh-huh. Um, so it's sometimes difficult to, to distinguish, but I think this, uh, for both are like a management question. So, okay. The next thing up is pyloric stenosis, which the incidence is three out of 1000 births, which see, is... but I feel like I see more TEFs hundred percent than pyloric stenosis. 100%. I could not agree with you more. <laughs> I've tried to rule out pyloric stenosis many times. It's a lot. Never, it's never pyloric <laughs> it's stenosis. It's never pyloric So there's a few things that you must know when it comes to pyloric stenosis. Ugh. Obviously, this, males... They love this. Males they have a greater it. incidence than females. Five to one. It's not even close. 
Um, it's greater incidence in firstborn males, and it is associated with blood groups O and B and maternal stress in the last trimester. That's such a great, easy way to draft a question. <laughs> Mother is, God knows, maybe in a in a in an earthquake, and she gives birth to her nice. first, yeah, to her firstborn son, and um, then starts having. Pro- I mean, I have a feeling huh. if you say projectile vomiting, then suddenly people are like, "Oh, pyelonic stenosis." They may they may withhold that. Yeah, right. I I have a mnemonic. Oh, go go. As we enter the season of Passover, uh, which if you're familiar with Passover, one of the plagues is the death of the firstborn son. Uh-huh. So, greater firstborn males, Passover, pyloric stenosis. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> I'll remember that. I'll remember that. That is actually a good one. Uh, now, what's interesting is that... Um, the risk of developing pyloric stenosis in an infant really changes whether or not there's a family history. So listen to this. If a mother has pyloric stenosis, she has a 20% risk of having an affected son, 7% risk of having an affected daughter. So if the mother has it, then, I mean, yeah, if the mother has it, it's pretty, pretty, not outrageous, but it's already, like we said, that it's mostly male. So like, right, it, it would be, it would be quite shocking. Now, if the father had pyloric stenosis, their chance of having an affected son is 5.5%. And then the risk is 2.4% to have an affected daughter. And if you have a sibling, if one child has pyloric stenosis, the likelihood that the next child will have pyloric stenosis is 3%. So the etiology is postnatal hypertrophy um, and it's congenital delay of pyloric sphincter development. And the way, I mean, you could read up on the ideology of of pyloric stenosis um but there's a lot of basically there's a lot of theories there's nothing really conclusive so i don't expect a question on that uh clinically i think it's very interesting that it could present in the first starting in the first week of life all the way up to five months but on average you can expect it to be like around the first month the typical thing i remember is like six weeks old like it's a six week old baby who starts having uh, non-bilious projectile vomiting. Now, like I said, I think the problem is that if they say that the baby has projectile vomiting, you're going to be like, boom, pyloric stenosis. But I think it's more likely that they would present a baby with non-bilious vomiting, starting to get dehydrated. And the key is this is um, electrolyte disturbance, right? Where you would get hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis. So... Be on the lookout for that. Um, the way to diagnose pyloric stenosis is to get an ultrasound. And what you're looking on ultrasound is this apple core or string sign. Um, you could, I'm sorry, you could see the, um, on, on ultrasound, you could see the hypertrophy of the pylorus. And on barium enema, you would have the apple core or string sign on, uh, on those contrast studies. Finally, the management of pyloric stenosis involves obviously correcting the hypochloremic, hypokalemic, metabolic alkalosis and doing surgery where basically you would do a pyloromyotomy where basically you're, you're cutting through that muscle and just releasing the obstruction. So high yield, fairly easy to remember. 
Are you taking us on Duana Latresia? I sure am. Um, so, uh, Duana Latresia, so moving on to the small intestine, much less common than the hoings we've talked about so far. The rates are 1 in 20,000 uh, to 1 in 40,000 births. Um, it has a really high rate of associated disorders. Um, it's uh, associated in 31%, trisomy 21, uh, 20% of malrotation, uh, congenital heart disease 30%, esophageal atresia 10%, uh, GU anomalies 11%, and annular pancreas 20%. So if you see a duodenal atresia, you should really be thinking, what, what else can I find? The etiology of this um, is really a, a failure of recanalization of the intestinal tube during the 8th to 10th week of gestation um, after obliteration of the lumen by epithelial proliferation, which happens in the 6th to 7th week's gestation. So basically, the, 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 the passageway never really forms. And this usually occurs in the second part of the duodenum. Um, and so in utero, we may see polyhydramnios because, again, um, fluid is not passing. The fetal ultrasound may show a distended duodenum because, again, this happens in the second part of the duodenum. And then clinically, postnatally, we see bilious emesis, unlike in, project in the pyloric stenosis where we see non-bilious projectile vomiting. And, and the reason for that is also anatomic. So um, bile is produced in the liver, it's stored in the gallbladder, and it drains via the cystic duct into the common bile duct and into the second part of the duodenum through the ampulla of Vader. So we see bilious emesis when we have an obstruction um, in or past the second part of the duodenum. Um, uh, there's abdominal distension in the upper abdomen, and they may or may not still have meconium uh, passage. And the, diagno the diagnosis is this classic double bubble sign. Um, so you see some air fluid levels and no distal intestinal air, but you see two bubbles, the double bubble. Um, so you, and it, usually you see one on the left side, you see one again on the right side. So you see kind of the, the stomach and then the first part of the distended duodenum uh -huh. uh, creates the, the double bubble sign. This is a, a surgical emergency and requires abdominal decompression um, before going to surgery, obviously. Yeah. I have a feeling that um, duanolatresia is like this easy question. Like that question, like there are some questions that are going to be easy, right? Right. Um, it's going to be that one where a mother, they may describe a mother who goes through um, free, self free DNA. Right, they, mm -hmm. they walk you the path of self-free DNA. You find out that the baby is at a high risk of developing trisomy 21. And then they right. tell you that on the prenatal ultrasound, you see two bubbles, but we should know to an all right? Yeah. Because um, not everything, that's the other thing that I think is important to um, ease the anxiety of our fellow test takers. Not everything is going to be a trick. Not everything is going to be complicated. Some of the things are going to be exactly what you expect them to be. Right. And you should just be ready to not overcomplicate your life and just pick, pick just... to an all just go for it. I do think um, when people start to think, though, like, how do I don't, what are the embryology questions going to look like? It's usually related to this. <laughs> like, um, you don't need to know everything about the embryology, but why is uh, the okay, duodenal so, atresia? Right. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. If you yeah. wanted. 
what I was going to say is, you know, duodenal atresia is this failure formation of the passage versus pyloric stenosis where you see hypertrophy of the, the passageway, yeah. right? But, so those so are the... They may draft things. a question saying the mother has a self-free DNA screening that's positive for trisomy 21. The OB MFM does an ultrasound, sees a double bubble sign, and you're like, oh, duodenal atresia. And they're like, what Nailed is the, mechan what is the mechaniz mechanism right. underlying the pathology at hand? And the answer would be failure of recanalization of the intestinal tube during the eight to 10 week of gestation. And they may just be, they could make it complicated. They could say failure of recanalization of the intestinal tube during the 20th week of gestation, right? So you that need would to be know. really mean. But just remember, like the upper GI tract, it happens early. Early. It early. happens yeah. early. Remember, the GI tract is like a long, that's the way I try to teach the medical students about the embryology of the, uh, the, the GI tract is that it's a long journey. It, you have to make all this intestine. The intestine has to grow out of the abdomen, has eventually back to come. In. Then it has to come back in. So the beginning, it has to start early. This is not a process that can begin late in gestation. So remember, these, uh, these issues tend to happen uh, relatively early. Okay. The next one we're talking about is jejunal ileal atresia. Uh, incidence is about 1 in 1,500 to 5,000 births. Um, the overall incidence is uh, greater, right, than duodenal or colonic atresia. So we're going to say something? Oh, okay. No, uh, except that I, I think this is another place. They really like the frequency of where of the atresias and where they are located. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's not, and it's, I think it's, it's something where you might be tempted to always think duodenal atresia is more common, but it's not the case. Uh, the overall, um, the overall incidence is, is high, is equal, sorry, in both, uh, in either male or female. And, um, it's usually a single atresia, um, multiple atresias can occur in six to 20%, but the incidence of these single atresias are most common in the distal ileum. I feel like it's always a distal ileum. <laughs> it's always. Well, that's why it's 36%, yeah. right? 36%, so. uh, followed by the proximal jejunum, 31%, the distal jejunum in 20%, and the proximal ileum in 13%. So the ileum is either the most common or the least common, depending on whether you're looking at the distal, which is the most common, or the proximal, which is the least common. Okay. Now, what is the etiology? Because of the of the presence of bile droplet, meconium, and lanugo distal to the to the jejunal atresia, occlusion occurs after intestinal development. In contrast to duodenal atresia, what that means is that this is uh, creating an obstruction. While in duodenal atresia, it's technically obstructed to begin with, and it's supposed to be reopened. Um, Intrauterine ischemic injury is the most common etiology. That is going to be a question. Like this is like such, like I've seen this, I, I feel like I've seen this question every time I've taken either a practice test. I feel like it's always being asked. Um, these accidents may be caused by either valvulus, malrotation, intestinal strangulation at the umbilical ring, intestinal perforation, and or peritonitis. Um, vasoconstriction Vasoconstrictive drugs such as cocaine, pseudoephedrine, and nicotine are also implicated. Um, so this is this this vascular etiology of the um, of these injuries are are of these of these issues are are quite commonly tested. Um, in terms of clinical, because of we having an intestinal atresia, as we've said before, what is our amniotic fluid going to do? 
well, you can pee, but you can't really ingest all of it. So that's polyhydramnios, and that's going to be seen in one third of patients with jejunal atresia. Polyhydramnios is less common if you have ileal atresia. Obviously, the more you, I mean, the way I think about it is that the more you can stuff in there. <laughs> uh, infants with jejunal atresia are often small for gestational age. They'll present with bilious vomiting, just like with um, <clears throat> a lot of other intestinal obstructions. Um, the, they will have abdominal distension that is greater with the, when the atresia is more distal, and they, will, uh, they can have failure to pass meconium. Now, in terms of the diagnosis, you probably will, a baby that will present like this with some bilious emesis, having passed meconium, your first option will be to get a KUB. Uh, you'll get a plain um, uh, supine and lateral radiographs. You'll see dilated loops with their fluid levels. Um, jejunal atresia may show as the triple bubble, so upgrade from the duodenal atresia. Um, the greater amount of air, the lower the obstruction. If you see peritoneal calcification, which means you see these white dots around the abdomen, this suggests an in utero perforation and meconium peritonitis. The management is pretty straightforward. You call your surgeon and they, they, they know how to fix it, apparently. Okay, um, I think we have time for one more. And it's none other than malrotation. You want to take this one, Dafna? I got it. I got yeah, it. Yeah, let's go. Um, so, uh, the epidemiology of malrotation is that it can be isolated or associated with other malformations. Um, the most common associated um, problems are congenital diaphragmatic hernia, um, abdominal wall defects, intestinal atresia. So, if you have an intestinal atresia, you should always be checking for malrotation. Uh -huh. um, it's also this... Well, they love Beckwith-Wiedemann anyway. So if there's an association with Beckwith-Wiedemann, you should know about it. Um, so also associated with malrotation. So the etiology is that there's a failure of normal rotation with abnormal fixation, and it's associated with narrowed mesenteric variations. So really what happens is the small bowel is shifted to predominantly the right side, the cecum becomes displaced from the normal right lower quadrant to the right upper quadrant. And there are frequently these presence of the LADS bands, which the surgeons tell us about. They're fibrous bands, uh, which form between the cecum and the right posterior retroduodenal peritoneum. And what happens is this fixation of the fibrous bands serves as a tethering focus or like a lee point, which the bowel can become abnormally twisted around. Um, and so a malrotation, which means that things are anatomically in the wrong place, um, which then becomes twisted around like the lads bands, that creates the volvulus. Um, so a volvulus is not the same thing as malrotation, but a malrotation is the risk factor for volvulus. Uh -huh. And vol if volvulus occurs, it leads to intestinal ischemia. Um, which really becomes an emergency. Um, so clinically, uh, two-thirds have symptoms in the first month of age um, of the malrotation, but not all of them. So some of them are diagnosed late. If there's a concurrent volvulus, you may have bilious emesis, bloody stools, and or shock. And so this is yet another reason why bilious em emesis is just a, a, a clinical emergency. How do we diagnose it? Um, so it can be sometimes difficult to diagnose because on plain radiograph, uh, we may really have non-specific findings. 
Um, sometimes you see this complete obstruction with um, proximal dilated bowel loops and air fluid levels. Um, and if there's a complete obstruction, you may have decreased air distal to the obstruction, obviously. But the barium swallow is really the preferred initial study uh, because it's, we have much more definitive findings. Um, if there's a volvulus with complete obstruction, um, you see uh, what is called a bird's beak. So you have a dilated proximal duodenum, which tapers down distally to the point of obstruction. So that looks like a bird's beak. Yeah. So that's a complete obstruction. If you have a volvulus with partial obstruction, so some stuff gets through or it's intermittent, you see this spiral or a corkscrew appearance in the duodenum. Um, the other thing is if you uh, the intestines are filling with barium enema, the cecum is then seen in the right upper quadrant rather than the usual location of the right lower quadrant, um, which then diagnoses the malrotation. Um, the, the management is surgical, um, and that's the LADS procedure, which is really disrupting um, those fibrous bands to relieve um, the strain um, and uh, to decompress the, the abdomen. Okay. All right. I'll be back tomorrow. You will? You I promise? Will. I okay. promise. Me too. <laughs> See you tomorrow, Dr. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Incubator and Neonatology Review Podcast. If you like our show, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. We would love to hear from you, so please feel free to reach out to Daphna and I via email by sending your messages to nikupodcast at gmail.com. You can also message the show on Twitter at NICUPodcast. Thanks again for listening and see you next time. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care practitioner. Thank you.